Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. So we tend to always want like the big work of God. You know, come on. We're always asking for like a show of power. You know, come on, God. You know, bring it on. And who among us hasn't wondered, like Jesus' brothers, um, why are you doing these things in secret? <laughs> why, why, if you're this great, if you can heal everybody, why don't you just do it in a great big show of power? John 7, 4. I think we are more like Elijah than we realize. We want God to send fire, blow the enemy away. Haven't you ever wanted that? Just, you know, kill ISIS in a second. Slam, tear the mountains up, shake people up, Right? Do you pray that way? It's called imprecatory prayers. Um, My mom was famous for her imprecatory prayers. Somebody uh, shot out the windows of Calvary one time, and my mom's like, break their teeth in their mouth. And you're like, "Ah!" All I know is I never wanted to be on the bad side of my mom, right? It's like, I want to get her good prayers, not her imprecatory prayers. But God wants to teach his prophet Elijah a profound lesson that will greatly affect the way Elijah prays, the way Elijah ministers for the Lord. And it's a lesson that we all need. And if we get this, if we get this, it will revolutionize the way we think, the way we interact, the way we pray, and the way we minister. It is critical to understand the significance of what took place with Elijah on this mountain. God chooses the most effective way to get to the heart of people, and the most effective way is not the sound and the fury and the bluster. I mean, when someone yells at you, do you ever go, oh, I'm going to change now. Thank you for yelling at me. (laughs) I mean, who does that help, right? You're just like, the minute somebody raises their voice, don't all the shackles go up? Even if they're right, you're just like, <laughs> you don't receive it. But when someone comes to you in love and a very calm voice, don't you want to like, oh, thank you. Thank you. The way of God is so foreign to us. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. His ways are far above our ways. We are always trying to do everything in a super size way. We want the jumbo cup. We always want the big thing. We want campaigns. We want marches. We want events. We want fireworks. We want a show of power. There's more of us than of you. Force of arms. We want the biggest weapons possible. You know, I was reading about Gideon, and he's going out to, to fight, and he's like, okay, what are the weapons? And God's like, here's a torch, here's a pitcher, and here's a shofar, which is, you know, ram's horn. Wouldn't you have just been like, what? What? We've got Midianites with camels, and there's so many of them, they can't even be numbered, and you're sending us out with a trumpet? And with 300 men, you've already reduced our ranks. Though God has the power to do things in a big way, 
He chooses the still, small voice. Elijah had just experienced a huge show of God's power. So had the majority of Israel. There had been the contest, as you remember, on top of Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal. For hours, the prophets of Baal had done the big thing, right? They had the greater amount of prophets, the show of force. They worked themselves into the frenzy. They had the emotion, the big emotional appeal. They had taken the majority of the day, and they had danced, screamed, cut themselves to no avail. The fire did not fall. But Elijah, after one simple prayer, the fire of God fell on a very simple, water-drenched altar and consumed the altar, the sacrifice, the water, and even the rocks that the altar was made out of. And the people had fallen on their faces and proclaimed, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then after that, Elijah was on his knees praying and kept sending his servant out. And his servant said, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand over the Mediterranean. Elijah's like, good enough. Go tell Ahab there's going to be an abundance of rain. Then Ahab uh, was on his way with his chariot and our prophet Elijah, he girded up, which means he tied up his robe and outran, outran Ahab to Jezreel. It's, it's a great, great moment. But after this incredible display of God's power, even Elijah feeling God's power in him, one note, sent by a messenger from Queen Jezebel, put Elijah on the run all the way to Mount Horeb, all the way, some hundred miles. Mount Horeb is actually Mount Sinai. And Elijah finds a cave and settles into this cave when God speaks to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Have you ever realized or considered how God always is asking questions? If you read through the Bible, there's always, God always answers with questions to Adam and Eve. Where are you? He knew where they were. And then when they said, well, we hid from you because we were naked. He said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? What is this you have done? To Cain, where is Abel? Seen Abel lately? You know, your brother? And then, what have you done? Jesus did the same. In John 1, 38, when the disciples, and I love this because you kind of get this idea of John and Andrew kind of creeping on Jesus. You know, Jesus is walking and they're like, there he is, there he is, okay. Yeah, well, where did he go? Oh, he's over by the Jordan, come on. And, and Jesus turns to him and looks at him and goes, what do you want? And they're like, oh, where are you staying? It's like, come and see. But he asks them, what do you want? What do you want? In John 2, 4, when they run out of water at the wedding in Cana, and Mary comes to him and says, they've run out of, of wine. Sorry, they didn't run out of water. They ran out of wine. I know my stories. They've run out of wine. 
And he says to Mary, what does your concern have to do with me? In Mark 2.8, as he's healing, um, as he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you. The people begin to, you know, whisper to each other, only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And he says, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Then in Luke 8, 25, after the storm and the panic of the disciples, Jesus stands in the boat and says, where is your faith? Now, I've only pointed out just a few of the questions. There were so many, and I knew I had to catch a plane. So I stopped, and you should be thankful. But why ask questions? Why? One, because it inspires personal probing. Have you ever noticed that? It inspires you to have to think, well, where are you, Adam and Eve, and why are you there? It inspires introspection. Because sometimes they'll feel like, why are you asking that question? And you're like, uh. And it requires that you stop and analyze, what am I feeling? What am I seeing? And what is it that I know intuitively but I haven't given voice to? What am I unconsciously acknowledging? What do I want? What is it I'm seeking? What is it I want? Again, we've talked about this before, but as women, we don't really know what we want always. And so this introspection helps. Have you ever had your husband say, "Uh, where do you want to go for dinner? And you're like, uh, uh, you choose. And then they say, oh, let's go to, I don't know, El Pollo Loco. And you're like, no, 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 no. It's something nicer. Oh, nicer. Okay, do you want to go down to Mikasa? Oh, no, 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 no. They put way too much cheese on everything. No, no, no. Well, do you want to go to Baja Fresh? No, 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 not Mexican, not Mexican. Okay. Do you want to go to Burger Lounge? Hamburgers, french fries. Hmm, no. Well, then where do you want to go? You choose. You choose. You know, but we're finding out in our mind, what do I really want? What do I feel like? You know, so it says, where do you want to go to dinner? Hmm, what do I feel like? You know, what do I want to taste? You know, honestly, I would probably say, let's just get the food and go straight to sprinkles for the cupcakes. But it inspires personal probing. Secondly, it initiates conversation. Questions are a great way to start a conversation, to get a conversation going. It's an opportunity for us to talk openly and honestly with God. Don't you love that God wants to talk to us? Not just have us, you know, give him all our requests, our, our, this is my, you know, to-do list for you, God. Let me read it, itemize it. No, he wants a conversation. In fact, it says in Psalm 51, 6, that God desires truth in the inward parts. He wants us to tell him how we're feeling, what we think. He loves talking to us. You know, I had my grandson, Remy, with me the other day. He's two, he'll be three. He'll be this many. 
pretty soon. And I, he started, he's just now conversant, you know, and I love conversations with Remy. He, he was in a really bad mood when I picked him up from preschool. But my mother-in-law had given him this bear that was like, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And the bear, the ears, I mean the dog, the ears would go up on the dog and it would clap. So I'm driving the car and I'm like, if you're happy and you know, I'm singing along with the dog and he's like, Grandma, don't, don't sing. <laughs> and so then, you know, I'm like, if you're happy and you know, and clap your hands. And he's like, oh, Grandma, drive. Don't clap your hands, drive. And you know, I was like, well, how was your day? And he won't talk. Did you play with so-and-so? He won't talk. Did you, you know, and then I said, did you have a bad day? Yeah. Was someone mean to you? Yeah. And I said, did they hit you? No. So, you know, I have to go through, did they, did they, you know, spit on you? No. Did they push you? Yeah. Was it a girl? No. Was it a boy? Yeah. What's his name? I won't tell you because <laughs> I've got issues right now. And I don't want to go to the imprecatory prayers. I said, did you like it when he pushed you? No. But I wanted to, I started asking him questions to initiate conversation. And then he started talking to me and telling me everything that was going on. But it is to initiate conversation because it requires us to respond, right? And then finally, it invites confession. So it inspires personal probing. It initiates conversation. And it invites confession. I'm very proud of those eyes, so I hope you wrote it down. It invites confession. Adam and Eve, we ate, they could have just said, we ate from the tree we shouldn't have. It gives you a chance to repent, to get it all out. I am guilty of. Because in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you know, God wants confession. My mother, the one with the imprecatory prayers, she used to always say, if you come to me and you confess and you're honest, the punishment will be much less. But if I find out. <laughs> in fact, my mom would look at me and I'd just start confessing everything, even the sins of the next door neighbors. I just, anything. It invites confession. It gives us a chance to free our conscience and our heart of those sins that are separating us from God or those little um, niggling things that come between us. I think God asks Elijah this question for all three of those reasons, to probe. Elijah, what was it that sent you on the run? What are the factors that made you afraid? And why did you choose this place? Why this place? I think it allows for um, conversation honest conversation. Share what is going in your heart. Tell me all about what you're feeling, those things that you've kept trapped in your heart. Just say it. Let it out. Confession. What are you doing here? What is your disposition? What got you here? I think Elijah went to Horeb because that is where Moses had his encounter with God. We read that in Exodus 33:18 all the way to verse 7 of chapter 34. Moses, like Elijah, had been angry with the Israelites. Israel's 
idolatry and stubbornness were jeopardizing the promises of God and leaving Israel in the wilderness. And just like Elijah, Moses was angry with the people because of their idolatry and stubbornness. Moses wanted to see God's glory, just like Elijah wanted to see God's glory. Moses was hidden in the cleft of a rock, which is another word for cave. And Elijah in the cave or the cleft of the rock. And God showed both men his glory. To Moses, it was the proclamation of his character. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the and guilty. Elijah needed to be recalibrated, and that would come by time alone with God. Time of probing, time of conversation, time of confession. In the presence of God. Elijah answers God, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life also. In other words, Elijah is saying, I've been very zealous for you. I gave it my all. In fact, Lord, I'm the only good guy left. Ever feel like that? I'm the only good guy left. I tell Brian all the time, I'm the only wife left. There's never been another one, but I like to say that anyway. I've been defending you. They did this to you. I've been doing all this for your honor. I'm fighting for you. How come you're not fighting for yourself? Why am I fighting alone for you? Israel has not changed. My life is in jeopardy. All this because I'm fighting for you. And God tells Elijah to go and stand on the mountain outside the cave before him. And there is a great display of power, a great and strong wind. It's so powerful. You know the story. It breaks the rocks in pieces and tears the mountain apart. Probably about this time, Elijah went back into the cave. Next, there is an earthquake. The whole earth and the mountain shakes violently. Then there's a great firefall, perhaps just like the one that consumed the sacrifice, comes down. But God was not to be found, found in the wind, the earthquake, or the fire. Not that God didn't bring them about. Not that God didn't do that. But he wasn't in. It wasn't his will. It wasn't the way he wanted to work. Yeah, I always say, I'm just not into it. Just not into it. God just wasn't into the wind. God just wasn't into the earthquake. God just wasn't into the fire. But then we read there was a still, a calming, assuring, authoritative, just a very calm voice. I love calm voices. My father had the most calming voice, didn't he? Those of you who knew him. I love calm voices, and that's why I married Brian, because he has a calming voice just like my dad. I love that calm. My dad would say, 
only a weak man yells. And I only remember him yelling once, and that was at a turkey at Thanksgiving. <laughs> he just never raised his voice. That, that still, small voice. It's small, almost a whisper, so that Elijah had to come out of the cave out from the cleft just to hear. He, he put the mantle around his face and he, like, I, I, I can't hear. Like, do you ever have it when a little child is like, you're saying, do you want apple juice or milk? <laughs> apple juice or milk? <laughs> Yell it. <laughs> do you want apple juice or milk? You don't like either of them. One year, my son, uh, Brayden, he's now 30-something, but he was having a birthday. And, you know, there's cake, and there's candles, and everyone's singing to him. And he was like this to me. And I leaned down, and everyone's just so happy, and they're doing everything. And I leaned down, and it's his three-year-old birthday. He goes, I hate happy birthday to you. And of course, I'm like, what, what? Because I'm thinking, I could not have heard this, so I leaned in again. I hate happy birthday to you. And it was like, what did he say? What did he say? And I'm like, <laughs> he's so cute. <laughs> I hate, in fact, when something's going wrong, this is what we say to each other. I hate happy birthday to you. You know, considering my next one's 63, I probably will say it too. I hate happy birthday, do you? <laughs> but you have to lean in. You have to approach. You have to get close to hear a whisper, don't you? You have to be intimate and you have to be close. This is what we have with Elijah. At this still small voice, he is drawn to the entrance. And there, God repeats his question to Elijah, what are you doing here? It's interesting to note that Elijah's answer has not changed at all. The display of the power of the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, they have not dislodged his fears. They have not dismissed his disappointment, and they have not changed his perspective. Elijah repeats his answer word for word. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. It's, it's the rhetoric he's been using over and over again. It's interesting, though, because Elijah expected the fire of God at Mount Carmel to change the disposition of Israel and be a catalyst for spiritual change in the country but it hadn't changed anything. But Elijah, having seen the display of God's power, the wind that tore up the mountain, the earthquake that shook the mountain, and the firefall, it didn't change anything with Elijah either. You know, sometimes we are judging people like, they should repent. They shouldn't be like this. And God's like, would it, would it have worked for you? I wrote them that mean letter, and they're still doing it. And the Lord's like, would you have liked a mean letter? Would that have changed anything? Like, uh, uh. 
You see, the display of power, it doesn't change anything. And God was taking that, that part of Elijah and all those expectations and Elijah's plan for repentance, that event, and saying, that's not what works. And that's not the way I want to work. Perhaps you remember this story in the book of Mark when the disciples, John and James, are with Jesus and he set his, his sights to go to Jerusalem. And he's going through a Samaritan village and they're like, no, he's not allowed in here unless he's going to stay. And we don't want someone who's just going to use this as a pass-through for Jerusalem. And John comes to him and says, you want us to call down fire from heaven? Just poof, consume them? I mean, they rejected you. I mean, this is for your honor. And the Lord speaks to him and says, you do not know what spirit you're to be of. For the Son of Man did not come to condemn, but to save. You do not know what spirit you are of. You see, we are not to be of the spirit of the wind, the storm. We are not to be of the spirit of the earthquake. We're not to be of the spirit of the fire where Jesus formed community. What are we to be like? We're to be like the gracious, compassionate God who draws to himself by his still, small voice. We're talking in leaders' meeting, and I was saying, you know, what's the best way to get a child to like you, right? Don't you get down and say, hi. You get on their level, and you make yourself as unintimidating as possible, right? Don't you do the same thing with a squirrel? I don't know which of you have been feeding squirrels lately, but you know, okay, yeah. So you, you get down, you, you put it in your hand, you try not to move, or like a little birdie, and you're just like, see, look at me, I'm so safe. I'm just so safe. I'm not that big person like this. I'm this safe. And that's what God does with us. He gets down, he goes low, he condescends, and with love and grace and compassion, not his booming voice, not even the voice that said, let there be light, but with the voice of just so much compassion, so much love, the voice that's irresistible, the voice that we want. It's the love of God that leads men to repentance. God continues to speak to his prophet. God is not finished with Elijah. Don't you love it? God's not finished with Elijah. He loves Elijah. I believe that this experience is the apex, that this is what God wanted with Elijah, this honest conversation. There is still work for Elijah to do. He still needs to anoint two kings, Hazael in Syria, Jehu in Israel, and he needs to anoint Elisha as his successor. God will take care of his own enemies. Don't you love that? You know, he says, like, I will take, Hazael will deal with all my enemies, 
And who Ahaziel doesn't deal with, Jehu will deal with. In fact, Jehu did wipe out all of the Baal priests and worshipers in Israel. And he says, and those that Hazael or Jehu don't deal with, Elisha will. That's not your ministry. That's not what I have for you. I have the ministry of anointing, of bringing my awareness to kings and to your successor. Then he says, Elijah, you're not the only godly man left in Israel. Isn't that how we sometimes feel? I'm the only one left, or our church is the only church doing it right. But God has 7,000 who have never bowed the knee to Baal. I would say God has a million churches that love Jesus and are doing it right, at least. God has preserved them spiritually and physically, and he will continue to preserve his people. As I mentioned in the beginning, we are always looking for the big, powerful show and event. We want the wind that will tear apart the mountains and break the rocks in pieces. We want the earthquake that will shake the world up. And we want the fire to fall and consume the enemies. Something like this happened, but it happened after the greatest show of love, the greatest show of sacrifice, the greatest show of weakness by our God. Because when Jesus was on the cross, died, let men do whatever they wanted to him, stretched out his hands and died, we read that darkness covered the earth and the rocks were rent in pieces, that the earth shook and even some of the dead were seen walking. This is in Matthew. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. But God was not in those. Where was God? He was in Jesus. He was in the weak man on the cross, reconciling all men to himself by the greatest display of weakness, of love, but also of authority. God chooses to use his voice. Jesus is the word of God as the transformative factor in people's lives and even in our lives. You see, God's still small voice is the fire, is the hammer. In Jeremiah 23, 29, God asks, again, questions. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? His word is able to do what wind, earthquakes, and fire can never do. Wind, earthquakes, and fire might have an initial impact on people. For a moment, they might say, the Lord, he is God. But unless the heart is affected, unless the heart is transformed, Nobody changes. Nothing is transformed. But God's word is able to get into the heart. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thought and intents of the heart. Don't you love it? God chooses the small work to do the great work. I call your attention once more to the cross. 
It was by this display of weakness and love that God, through Christ, paid the penalty for all the sin. It was through the cross that he dealt with all the evil, not by weapons of mass destruction, but by a cross and by the ultimate, the ultimate act of love. In fact, we read in Colossians that in that ultimate act of love, he made a public display triumphing over powers and principalities, disarming them of all their power to hold anyone who would choose to believe in Jesus Christ. God desires to transform our lives by an intimate relationship with him, by a still small voice, by speaking to us through the word. He wants to transform us so that we become the agents of his personality. Not that we're the blustering people. You know, years ago, we used to have this greeter um, when we lived in um, London, the church greeter. And he'd be like, come in, come in, learn about the love of God. And if they didn't want it, he'd be like, all right, then die in your sins, you stupid idiot. And he'd use some coarse words that I will not use. We had to remove him from being the greeter. You can understand why. But sometimes we're like that. You know, we give them the, the, the message about Jesus, and if they're like, I'm not interested, then you're like, they got it. Anyway, that's not the way of Jesus. It's just not the way of Jesus. And God wants to speak into us by his still small voice, his love, his goodness, his grace. So that when we see the guy with the really long fingernails and the high heels, we, we say, I had nails like that. I bought them at Target. They just didn't work out for me. How are yours working out for you? That we show them the love of Jesus. That we speak to them in the still, small voice of Jesus. That we draw them in by the still small voice of Jesus. God desires to transform our lives by an intimate relationship with us and by his compassion and his love, not by sound and fury, or as Shakespeare said, sound and fury signifying nothing. He wants to draw us close and whisper in our ear. In this way, he dispels our fears dismantles our wrong perspectives, deals with our disappointment, fills us with his power, and commissions us to go in his spirit, his attitude to others. So when you hear God whisper, what are you doing here? Remember, this is God's way of inspiring introspect. Okay, let me try that again. Remember, this is God's way of inspiring introspection on your part initiating conversation, and inviting you to open confession with him. Let's pray. Father, you're the only God, but you're the best father in the whole wide world. There is no one like you. 
Father, we get it wrong so many times. Lord, thinking that you want to be the, the storm God, the wind God, the fire God, the earthquake God, when you want to be who you are, the God of love, the God that so loved the world that he gave his only son. You are the God who came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Father, speak to us in that still small voice. Work in our hearts and our minds until we speak like Jesus, until we love like Jesus, until our actions draw men in rather than repel them. Lord, take away from us all our weapons of mass destruction and give us instead your weapons of love and joy and peace and truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.